0: Everyone, welcome to the cornea corner, a podcast where two new optometrists demystify anterior segment diseases and specially contact lenses while exploring what's new in the corneal world. Hi everyone. My name is Priscilla Chang and this is my cornea loving co-host, Shawan Rashid. How's it going, girl? Good as always, you already know. How are you? Doing well, enjoying the the sun and wearing my sunglasses, so it's been it's been fun. <laughs> sunglasses and sunscreen. So I'm really excited about this episode. Our
1: last episode was about myopia control. We did part one and so we kind of hinted that we were going to have our first guest and I mentioned this to her before but this is another resident. Her name is Jess Mean. We actually I think became really close. I want to say thanks to Twitter. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) We owe this all to Twitter So I'm going to let her kind of talk about herself and introduce herself, and then we'll get into the rest of the episode.
2: Hi, everyone. First of all, I am so honored and excited to be here as a guest. Like, wow, so flattered. So my (laughs) name is Jasmine, uh, Jasmine Bungu. I am a Cornean Contact Lens resident through Pacific University at a private practice called Specialty Eye Care Group in the Seattle area. And we're just getting to the end of our residency now. It's so exciting,
1: right, Shawan? Thank God. Yes, it's great. (laughs) Very exciting. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if my residency director is listening to this, um, Dr. Fuller, I've appreciated everything. Not that I haven't. (laughs) We're just ready for the next step, I think.
2: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. So a little bit about a lot of the the focus of my residency. It's been a little unique, I get to do a ton of contact lenses. I see a lot of keratoconus patients, a lot of corneal disease patients who require specialty fittings. But I wanna say one of the most unique aspects of my residency is how much myopia management I get to do. A ton, it's kinda crazy how many patients I've started from start to finish myself and how many I've picked up along the way from previous years as well,
1: yeah. I remember us talking about myopia control before, and we had a conversation about this and you said you have seen quite a few. I think that's the one area where my residency could improve on. I see any and everything, but when it comes to myopia control, honestly, I've probably seen just a handful of patients. About how Mm -hmm. many patients do you think you've treated or picked up along the way? Yeah, so that's actually
2: a really good question because my attending actually had me track how many patients I've started from consultation to finalizing their contact lens fitting if if we're going with a contact lens. And so I want to estimate I've started about 50 patients myself from consultation to fitting and then total. So from previous years, continuing treatment, I want to say close to maybe a hundred or so, probably more. I've seen so many at this point, it's hard to keep track. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, that's why we have you here as a guest, because I think a lot of our listeners are new grads or young ODs who are just curious about how do they even get into myopia management. So the fact that you've done so many, we should try to pick up some pearls from you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm happy to share the knowledge. Happy.
0: So do the kids
1: get referred to you or how does the process work? Or do you guys Mm -hmm. advertise for myopia control? So- We do get a lot of referrals. There's an ophthalmologist in the area who
2: is great about referring his his patients over for consultations. He's one of the few who's so forward thinking, like, I love him. Dr. Epley is amazing. I've never got the opportunity to meet him yet. And so, and a lot of our patients are also in-house. We've seen them since they were very young. Another unique aspect about the residency location is my attending's wife is a vision therapy doctor. And so her aspect of practice is doing all pediatrics and vision therapy. And so, if you're wanting to be serious about myopia control and monitoring children, it's very important that you also monitor their binocular vision functioning because that can help, that, that can either spiral you out of control with your management and make it really tough or also make it really easy. But that's a different conversation. And so, yeah, we do have a lot of children that are in house. The, um, the pediatric and vision therapy specialist, the associate doctor, she will refer to me also myopia consultation requests. And she herself does a little bit as well. So it's a little, it's a mix of everything.
0: So can you tell me a little bit more about the practice? It sounds like you have a few associate doctors. Does it mean, do people do primary care? Does everyone have their specialty? What is the, the setup?
2: Yeah. So we are a three location practice, my residency site, and it's my attending and his wife. So husband and wife owners, and they have one associate and I'm their resident. And so it's just the four of us right now. They'll actually be getting a new resident and a new fellow coming up soon in the summer. So they tend to stick to their specialties, but we see everything. It's uh, primary care, disease, and then each of our specialties, contact lenses or vision therapy, binocular vision stuff. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Did you have prior experience with myopia control at school or with your internships? Were you pretty familiar with it? or? I
2: want to say I was thrown into it and learned it, like picked it up pretty quickly. And shout out to all of the literature in the world out there because the literature <laughs> is what helped me so much. Mm-hmm. I am, I would say, my confidence in management comes from the literature reviews I've done and the number of fittings I've done. I probably saw one orthokeratology fit my entire fourth year mm-hmm. rotations, mm-hmm. and Dr. Spores at my university, Western U, he did a great bit on myopia control and the and the science behind how myopia works but we never actually managed any for myopia at our school so this was my first exposure to my own patients yeah
0: walk me through the patient experience cuz it sounds like you're getting referrals it sounds like maybe the first visit that they're seeing you is like the consultation mm-hmm. and i guess that's one of the biggest barriers i think for people to get started is trying to think about like it from the patient experience and how do they guide them from Oh, I know about this, the existence of myopia management, and then finally, like learning more, what they actually yeah. are a candidate for, and then actually enrolling in it. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Like, how many visits is the
1: average, even? It depends. Um, so, if we're talking about,
2: if you want to include the consultation visit, there's a consultation visit where if I'm doing orthokeratology, if we're deciding on orthokeratology is the way to go. I have all my baseline parameters to be able to order an initial lens. And I don't know if it's this whole year, but I've pretty much come to a point where about, I want to say 90, 85 to 90% of my initial lenses are first fit successes. Um, And so, (laughs) yes. And I do something a little bit out of the box. I don't see them for a one day follow-up. I see them at the one week mark and then I see them at the one month mark. And then every six months after that, I know we're taught to do one day, one week, one month. Um, I just skip skip the one day altogether. That's just how my attending does it. And it's a system that works super well. So I'm going to continue to do that. Okay. Yeah. And if it's a soft contact lens fit, typically we do have the lenses that I want to put on a child's eye, the soft multifocals. We have my sight. I don't do too much my sight, but I have fit it on a few kids. And we do have a couple of other lenses that we've used. Are we talking about lenses? Like different sure. kinds of lenses? We don't have They're sponsors,
0: awesome. so it doesn't awesome. matter.
2: <laughs> awesome. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, natural view or the biofitty multifocal. Um, yeah. It's been an interesting experience getting to fit a variety of multifocals, soft multifocals and as well. And then atropine. So There's a compounding pharmacy in the area that I like to work with, that I send atropine prescriptions to for myopia management. I even called them, the first time I called them, I asked them what their batch pH is because that's very important, that it's shelf stable, if it's just a preserved version versus non-preserved and all that. Yeah, important questions. What is the appropriate batch pH? (laughs) I want to say it's around 6.4 or so, somewhere in that range. Yeah. 6.4 to 6.6 or something like that. And then we make it very clear to the parents that, Hey, the cost of the atropine is going to be on you because that's, you know, the pharmaceutical that we're prescribing, but the management with and the monitoring with the prescribing is what you're paying for with us. And that's, Mm. that's included in the program because we don't want any surprises like, Hey, we paid X amount of money to be a part of this program, but now we're having to pay for the drug as well. And it's like, Mm -hmm. yes, that's the cost of the pharmaceutical that we're prescribing you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, honestly, it varies. It could be anywhere from two to three visits or more in that initial phase. And then just every six months after or, or closer, if depending on, you know, the myopic risk profile or how highly myopic they are and based
1: on their age. So at the consultation visit, do you do like the annual exam or has that already been done? And this is just topography, axial skin measurement, things like that.
2: So annual exam has already been done. When they see me for the consultation, what I'm doing is getting a topography. I'm doing a refraction, checking their binocular vision status, and then making sure the retina looks good too. Just uh, we'll, we'll take a quick photo or we'll look at the chart notes that were sent over. And then a lot of it, most of that visit is me talking to the parent. There have been a few instances where I say, your child's binocular stability is a little bit questionable. I want you to see our VT specialist first, but then they're going to send them back to me because we want to make sure that you're stable and then we can start the program for this reason.
0: Can you elaborate and- on that a little bit? I I did have a few of my friends actually like texting. me it's like, oh yeah, like when you're doing the binocular evaluation for a myopia management patient who did not you know, perhaps get their comp exam through you? Like what kind of tests are you running? And when is it actually concerning that you should be sending someone over to have a VT consult instead of proceeding with myopia management first?
2: Yeah. So you're asking like, what are a couple of things that I like to screen for? Like What are your
0: go-to tests?
2: <laughs> yes. So I'm by no means a binocular vision specialist, but my VT specialist and I have come up with some screening tests that we like to do that if it's vicious, I'll send it to her. And so doing a good cover test, if they have a correction with best correction, NPC, behind the fraptor, you want to do NRI, PRA, FCC. And if there's a fail anywhere there and you're seeing a pattern, it's very important to address the binocular vision dysfunction that's going on first, because that's going to cause a lot of issues when you've started the myopia program later on. Yeah. It's gonna, it's gonna show you progression that may not be actually there. And Mm. it makes you chase your tail when you're making adjustments to lenses.
1: Oh, wow. I didn't think of that. That makes sense.
0: What if they're (laughs) ego? I feel like you had a very good, like kind of background on like, okay, if I'm doing this one measurement, this is kind of how many visits I would do. But like, say like, I have no clue and I'm just a kid that showed up in your chair and the parents are like, what is myopia management? like mm-hmm. what is this program like how do you explain that and how do you kind of get the process going to be like okay mm-hmm. i think you're a candidate for x y or z and then then you schedule the next visit and how like, do i determine like <laughs> yeah. candidate candidacy as well right yeah
2: so a lot of it has to do with so the consultation does come at a cost and that's a good screener. If parents aren't willing to pay for the cost of the consultation, then mm-hmm. they're likely gonna give you a lot of pushback when they see you for the actual, when, they're, when you're presenting the program itself too, cause that can mm-hmm. be costly.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, that's
2: because we're paying for, as a provider, your expertise, your time, your capabilities as not just a fitter, but somebody who's gonna be mm-hmm. monitoring this child over time for progression. And what do you mm-hmm. do when you see progression, right? We mm-hmm. always expect progression too. Another, another thing to talk about. So, we manage a lot of the expectations during the consultation. I never ever promise a parent that their child will see 2020. We like to talk about it as this is myopia treatment. Correction will get you to 2020. Treatment may not, and that's okay because we know that they have the possibility to be 2020. As long as they're 20 functional, that's our goal. And mm-hmm. so, we temper a lot of the expectation during the consultation. Additionally, we like to if, if the child has already been wearing glasses, we sort of motivate the child that way, too. Like, you're not going to be wearing any lenses or, you know, glasses during the day if you wear these overnight lenses. And you typically have to work within the FDA approval of the overnight contact lenses. And you can, you know, adjust fits in a way to sort of squeeze past that just a little bit. But when you get to those really high myopes that are in your chair and they're saying, what can I do? You have like a minus seven, you know, 10 year old, and now you're getting into that world of, all right, the soft contact lenses have higher parameters where Mm -hmm. I can help you more. As long as you have a good idea of where their binocular status is, you can push a lot of plus in that periphery with the multifocal lenses and still be very successful with functional vision. And that's my goal. At that point, if I'm seeing that in my chair, I'm going to add combination treatment. I'm a huge proponent of combination treatment. And I don't see any problem in prescribing atropine to children in addition to soft contact lenses. A lot of the questions that I get in the exam room from parents are like, how long will they have to do this? There was a study, I think it was the Comet study, that showed about 50% of myopes, they stabilize at age 16 and then 95% stabilize by age 21. So I show that figure to parents and I say, look, there's still a huge chance that your child will progress in their, you know, late teenage years after, if you, you know, upon cessation of treatment and even into adulthood. And a lot of patients who get into these overnight lenses actually love them so much that they continue well into adulthood too, which is Mm -hmm. not a bad thing. At that point, if you've decided after a washout that they've stabilized, you can always adjust the optic zone diameter to where you're not getting too much peripheral plus and you're maximizing correction versus treatment. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. That's a good point. I think we were so Jasmine and I just went to the Cooper Vision Residency Summit when we learned a lot about myopia control. And one of the speakers we were talking to mentioned uh, when it comes to orthokeratology, if you're going to be doing myopia control with it or myopia treatment, you want the optic zone to be kind of small. Yep. Mm -hmm. I think I forgot what how large she said, but small. And then once we get into myopia correction with Okay, okay, you want to really optimize that optic zone diameter and make it larger. That way you can have less of the glare. And then like you mentioned, the peripheral issues and then nighttime driving issues and things like that. Right. Yeah.
2: And then as part of our myopia program, also we include the cost of low powered lenses. As long as they bring us a frame or they pick out a frame from us, we cover the cost of lenses up to like minus 75 diopters. So mm. three quarters of a diopter just for that extra little minus if they need it most of my kids do get to 2020. So I under promise and I over deliver just so that parents are happy (laughs) and they're not, you know, helicopter parents all over me. And I want to say a lot of these, especially when they're sensitive about their child, they do become those quote unquote helicopter parents. And we have to be sensitive to their, to their needs
1: too. Definitely. And how often do you take axial length measurements? Do you guys do that at the practice? First of all? Yeah, that's a great question for a referral center
2: that done a ton of myopia management. We actually don't do axial length measurements. Wait, what? Um, I know, mind blown, right? The, The amount of stuff I'm talking about, no axial length measurements. So I believe that if we are wanting most providers to get on board with myopia management, we have to make it accessible. And an axial length measurement tool is not the most accessible. And it's not strictly necessary. It's really a very nice to have tool, but it's not a need to have in the world of myopia management you can still be serious about myopia management and not have that tool. Interesting. And yes, and if, you know, push comes to shove, if you have a relationship with a provider in the area who has one, maybe it's an ophthalmologist up the street, you can explain to them, hey, I'm just wanting this one measurement for this child. They might go ahead and do that for you. I mean, in the ideal world, that would be great. Or in the ideal world, you'd actually have a tool to measure. But yeah, I don't think it's strictly necessary.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. How are you monitoring for progression then? Is it purely just
2: refractive? At this point it is. And I know that can be a little controversial because I mean, in in my heart of hearts, I wish I had a tool to measure axial length, but I do not. And Mm -hmm. so I rely a lot on the refractive findings. And ultimately we do expect some form of progression But our job is to make sure that we're keeping an eye on how much that is. And if there's something more that we could be doing, we want to do that. For Mm -hmm. example, if a child is strictly wearing orthokeratology lenses, overnight lenses, or strictly wearing soft multifocal lenses, throw on the atropine. I don't really want to see any progression, but if we're seeing it, we just have to monitor it
1: more closely. For sure. So how do you explain the cost to the parents when it comes to myopia control? Obviously, Mm -hmm. no matter what treatment you go with, it could be atropine or soft multifocals or Mm -hmm. ortho K. I mean, more than likely it's going to be over a thousand dollars. So how do you explain this to the parent to, you know, you're going to have to drop this amount of money and this is going to be an annual thing for a long time, really Mm -hmm. for a few years at least.
2: So during any given consultation, I tailored the, the discussion based on the patient in the chair. And that might mean discussing the patient's myopic risk profile, genetic risk of conversion if they're pre-myopic, and also a conversation about siblings, especially if they're younger. And Mm. usually that conversation makes sense to parents and they see it as an investment in the future of their child. And they're willing to invest in that. Given that the treatment modality is included in the cost of the program and all the follow-ups related to myopia management are included, they see the value of initiating treatment in most cases especially when they themselves have experienced ocular comorbidities associated with myopia. I have more than a few parents who have had retinal detachments, who have glaucoma, who have had done clear lens exchanges because they're just so highly myopic. It's a quality of life Mm -hmm. issue. So they can Mm -hmm. understand that. And something I like to do for parents who don't have any refractive error Mm -hmm. is I'll actually throw in some Make them suffer. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Make them suffer during the consultation and show them what their child is going through on a daily basis visually. And so you know, when you talk about like, for example, orthokeratology lenses as retainer lenses, it's mm-hmm. almost going into that whole dental model of, you know, treatment. And so, of course, all of that is also just out of pocket. It's cosmetic work, right? With myopia, it's not cosmetic, but unfortunately we don't have insurance coverage for this type of treatment. And mm-hmm. so they're willing to invest out of pocket for treatment absolutely. That's an excellent
1: point. A lot of my keratoconic patients, especially mm-hmm. the young ones where their parents bring them or there's someone else bringing them, when they don't understand how a keratoconic person sees, I get like a minus 550 cell with like a plus six and I put in a trial frame and I give it to them. I'm like, this is about how it looks very blurry and very distorted if they don't have scleral lenses and it's not much better with glasses you know and then they finally understand they're like oh, wow i let you drive <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and then they start going off about them driving their car and i'm like well you're the one trusting them with your car <laughs> yeah yeah is okay. there
0: any technology that you're especially excited for in the myopia management field hmm i see the future
2: of myopia with at least orthokeratology lenses moving towards topography guided fittings I'm seeing that happen right now actually. So I'm excited to see how first fit success rates improve over time. I said mine's about 85 to 90. What if we can get that up to 95 or you know 100% of first fit mm-hmm. lenses and that's all based on topographical measurements and the sensitivity of topographical measurements and the lab that you're working with.
1: Yep.
2: Other exciting tools I, I got to say, I work with the Medmont Meridia and I'm so spoiled by this tool and I will miss it when my residency is over. Mm-hmm. So that's only been around for about a year, two years now. And I,
1: I mean, really, you can't, at this point, you can't really be such an awesome topographer. Uh, we have a Medmont and I feel like I'm so much more comfortable with Pinnacam. What do you like about Medmont or, or how did you become comfortable with it? Did you have like a training yeah. session or anything?
2: And you also have to remember that I work with very difficult eyes. These are tiny, tiny palpebral apertures on five, mm. six-year-old kids. So I've gotten really used to it. It just oh, wow. takes time to work with it because it is a tiny cone, right? It's not it your is. large pentacam. And so what I really appreciate about it is this is, I'm also, I also do a ton of dry eye inocular surface disease and the Medmont Meridia has a dry eye suite. So it's like mm. all in one for me, essentially. Mm. So I really love it for that reason too. I didn't ever have a Pentacam around, but we do have a keratograph, and I agree. It's much easier to get topographical measurements on a large cone, placebo based topographer, but Mm -hmm. gosh, I love that meridia. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I don't have anything else on my radar right now for myopia. You don't really need too much technology
0: to get started. That's the beauty of it. Mm -hmm. What is the minimum technology that you think people need to have in their (laughs) clinics?
2: Great. If you're doing orthokeratology, all you need is a topographer. Really, that's the only extra equipment other than your usual stuff that you need. You cannot do orthokeratology without a topographer. Soft contact lenses, you don't need anything. You really just need mm-hmm. to be able to do your usual. Make sure you can get a good baseline refraction, and then you rely on your loose lens refractions to make changes over the lenses and make sure that the child is visually comfortable and you're helping control their myopic progression. And as far as atropine goes, you really don't need anything extra at all. You're just mm-hmm. checking a refraction every three or six months and vision to make sure that they're staying stable.
0: You mentioned that you have a very high first fit success for your orthokeratology lenses. Are you fitting yeah. these primarily empirically or diagnostically?
2: I don't see empiric- or excuse me diagnostic fits occurring anymore. Um, most of mine have all been empirical.
0: You go, girl.
1: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. What concentration of atropine? And me and Priscilla have talked about this a few times. And yeah. I feel like I ask everyone this, but I want to hear what your uh, go to concentration for atropine is. I guess it really depends on how aggressive you want to be, really. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And this is actually, I don't know if this is a point of contention with providers or whether it's um, a lack of comfort with atropine. I know Mm -hmm. a lot of people hesitate to go into the atropine world, but I wanna say I typically start with 0.05%, maybe 0.025% because I got burned by a blue eye. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I have, honestly, it was what, Adam one and two that talked about myopia with different concentration, it's concentration dependent. So Mm -hmm. if the the literature is telling us that higher the concentration, the better, you know, control you're getting, then why not start with the higher concentration? Because right. you don't want to see any control. And a lot of people may see that as being pretty aggressive. And I do too. I'm, I'm very ap- aggressive about how I treat myopia. If I can stop that extra half a diopter,
1: then why not? Do you taper them as they're getting older, like Over- um, when you're getting ready to stop treatment?
2: Yeah, that's actually a super good question. I haven't been around long enough to do that with a lot of these kiddos. But mm-hmm. my plan, if I were them long term, Would probably start tapering after two or three years from their concentration, maybe bring it down to 0.025 or 0.01 percent, depending on where they are, and maybe you know do cessation of treatment and see how stable they stay for six months. And if we're seeing good stability with just a contact lens or you know whatever they were doing before, then we can eliminate the pharmacological aspect of myopia control. From there. I mean, there's no, there's no conclusive evidence on when's a good time to stop atropine. All we mm-hmm. know is starting it is a good
0: thing. So it's difficult to make that decision. It's gotcha. funny because I actually discussed this with one of, I guess, our myopia control counselors. Like for us or in my practice, we have a specific individuals that are trained to just monitor and keep in touch with our myopia management patients just because we're, I'm in a practice that does a lot of primary care as well. And they have a spreadsheet where they monitor all the patients who've been in, you know, atropine, what's been going on with the refraction. And I was talking to them about like, washout, like how often should we be washing out these atropine patients just Mm -hmm. to see if we can wean them off. And they're just looking at me like, why would you ever consider that? Because- Mm -hmm what if they decided to progress during that time and now you have to like try to jump back on and you can never turn back time and i was like well mm-hmm. yeah that that makes sense but then it's just like do you, how, how long do we want these patients on atropine
2: <laughs> yeah and that also includes the risk of rebound myopic changes right if we right. like that's an important part of my discussion with parents is you cannot decide to stop this medication on your own because there's always a risk for rebound myopic changes and we don't know exactly why that happens but that's also a risk. So definitely weaning off of the drops is important.
1: Yeah, I agree. I definitely have not gotten to the point where I can, I haven't even really prescribed atropine at all. There's this mm-hmm. one kid, I want to get it going though at SEO I think that's something that, like I said, we can improve in that area. And I would love to collaborate with our peds department more. And I know we have to get approval since it's not technically FDA approved for that use. So we kind of have to go through a couple pieces of paperwork before we can start doing that.
2: What Are you telling me I've been doing this off label this whole time? It's mm. easy. You can do it.
1: <laughs> okay, good. Well then I'm going to, once I get the paperwork, I need to call you. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yes. I don't know how, because you're at an institution. I don't know how they're going to handle the cost of atropine. All of my patients' parents are paying out of pocket for it. I did find, a. Um, a compounding pharmacy that is actually slightly cheaper than the one I've been working with. So I may just start sending them there because it's like, you're charging me half the price of atropine than the one that I was usually working with. And that cost of the atropine isn't absorbed by us because the parents have to pay for that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're probably going to have to shop around for a
1: good compounding pharmacy. Generally, what kind of price are we talking about for, let's say, I don't know, like 0.05 or 0.25%. Do you know, do you know how much they pay? Yeah. So
2: it's actually not concentration dependent. It's just a batch based. So that's a nice thing is you don't have to worry about cost based on concentration. It's just for like, I think my parents for a 10 milliliter bottle Mm -hmm. are paying about $85 or so. And that's because, and I'm, and I'm also sure that the cost of um, the atropine is also based on, you know, where they are. This compounding pharmacy is in a city. In a mm-hmm. large city, whereas the other one that I was talking about, that's a little bit cheaper, mm-hmm. is out in a more affordable area too. So it's definitely based on cost of living and, and that sort of a thing.
1: Gotcha. If you're
2: getting preservative-free atropine, that tends to get more pricey. I want to say about 125 where I am. The other compounding pharmacy is about 47 for a 10 milliliter bottle. It's going to vary. It might be anywhere from 40 to 100 depending on where you are.
1: That is honestly not too bad. I don't know why I thought it was a lot more.
2: For a ten milliliter water too, that's not that's not bad at all.
1: No, definitely not.
0: My clinic actually uses a pharmacy that's out of state. So they did a lot of shopping to try to find the cheapest one. Oh, and wow. the one we use is actually in Kansas. So <laughs> a lot of our <laughs> patients are just like, wait, why are we doing this when there's local compounding pharmacies? And we just tell them like, hey, we understand that you're absorbing the cost of the pharmaceutical. So it just makes sense that we do the due diligence to yeah. shop around for you and find the cheapest one. And wow. that's kind of what we ended up doing. So a lot of our patients, they are really good about mailing it at a, in a timely manner. And, you know, yeah. they're going to call you with all the information, but yeah that's, oh, that's kind of awesome
2: how we do it. Mm-hmm. so well then i'm curious to know how much does a compounding
0: pharmacy charge for atropine where you are where you're located i haven't done the research so our myopia okay. counselors do the do the hunting gotcha. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> they, okay. our clinic is fun they do little secret shopping you know like the secret shopper experience and all of that <laughs> sure. they come together sure. and consolidate their research <laughs> yeah okay you know what would be a
1: really good investment if I was at a private practice, having a myopia counselor, like you just Mm -hmm. mentioned. So the doctor doesn't have to spend all that time explaining this.
0: That's right. Yeah. When I was starting our myopia management program, I was like, you know, a lot of this data, you know, the research, everyone can read up on the papers Mm -hmm. and try to understand it. And part of it is just having the basis of understanding the papers and why it's important to do myopia management. But I don't expect my myopia counselors to understand it to the depth as my fellow doctor would, but it makes it so that it frees up some of the time because for me, when I have my patients come in for a consultation, they already had a chance to talk to the myopia counselor over the phone. So they understand what the options are. They understand the costs. And what's different is we actually don't charge for that consultative visit. And so Mm -hmm. it's part of our global fee. And so it's kind of by the time they get into my chair, they have very specific questions. So then- it means that I'm not answering very basic questions like, "Oh yeah, why are we doing this? Like, <laughs> what are our options?" Yeah. It's more so like, "Let me do, you know, the refraction. Let me do the binocular vision eval, and let me figure out like what I think you're a good candidate mm-hmm. for." And at that point, you already kind of have an idea of the informed consent. Like, these are off label. These are on label. Lifestyle wise, what I think you'll be good for. And then after that, I hand the back over to the myopia counselor, who will then do the kind of the follow up. Or if I'm like, "Oh, okay, I'm gonna." prescribe them, you know, my site or something that if I have the lenses there, then they can automatically do contact lens training without me having to do it. So it does save up a lot of time for the doctor to be able to move on and go back to either primary care or see other patients that do more consultations.
2: I definitely see the value of that because my residency is a private practice site. And I would love if somebody was helping out with a lot of the nitty gritty details, I could just do mm-hmm. the fittings and talk about the important <laughs> things with parents. The fun stuff. <laughs> yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. And that's what after residency is for.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> to be spoiled.
0: <laughs> Gotta yeah. do the gritty work yourself first. <laughs> yes, absolutely.
1: And it's worth it. To- honestly, it's good yeah. that we're doing the the hard work now because now we understand how to train people for what to say and things like that. So if you have a patient with SIL, let's say I mean obviously with OrthoK when I was back in school we didn't really have a dual axis OrthoK lens that was very popular like we just didn't really talk about it so if mm-hmm. a patient had minus 0.75 SIL that was or more than that we mm-hmm. didn't discourage OrthoK but it just wasn't the best option but now we have dual axis lenses where it can correct a lot of the corneal sill as well so mm-hmm. Do you think it's a good idea to kind of try that route or go with like, let's say biofinity toric multifocal instead, for instance? I
2: will say I am a little bit more adventurous than maybe some of our colleagues. And (laughs) if I have some still on a patient, I'm going to throw an overnight lens on them and give it a shot. I like to tell parents, you know, there's a chance that this may not work really well, but if you're motivated to try and Mm -hmm. I'm wanting to try, it doesn't matter the cost of goods because- you know, it's all part of the program. So if we're unsuccessful in this lens, we can always move on to something that works. And I want to say most of the patients I've had with, you know, considerable moderate cell, and I'm saying moderate up to maybe like a buck 50, not more mm-hmm. than that. Super successful with overnight lenses. I haven't had a problem. Yeah.
1: Good. That's
0: awesome. Mm-hmm. What brand of orthokeratology lens do you like gravitate towards? Do you fit multiple mm-hmm. as a contact lens resident to explore all of them? <laughs> yeah, I think it's unique given that this is a private practice residency. So you
2: have to kind of work with what I have there with a little bit of wiggle room. I could do Paragon if I wanted to, but in recent times, especially when I started, they had shifted over to Euclid lenses. And so right now I'm exclusively fitting Euclid orthokeratology lenses.
1: What ad power do you typically gravitate towards when it comes to uh, a multifocal soft? Maximum, maximum ad that you can put in a lens. Yeah. So
2: if I can, 250, there's a couple that, like, and the natural view goes up to plus three ad. The bioaffinities tend to be 250. I think there's Mm -hmm. a different, I'm trying to remember. There's one, I think that's the ProClear that goes up to like plus four. I haven't put
0: a plus four on anybody's eyes, but it tends to be plus 250 or three. Okay. Have you used any hybrid lenses for myopia management in your clinic? Ooh, ooh, I
2: like the idea because Synodize just came out with their extended depth of focus lens, which is perfect. Actually, it's exactly what you need for myopia management, but I have not put a hybrid lens on a child yet. All of my hybrid patients are actually mild cones or normal corneas, but not myopia patients.
1: I don't know why that seems like such a big investment. Like that's That's kind of scary (laughs) to put a hybrid on. The hybrid
2: lens? Yeah. Well, I think the difficulty with hybrid lenses is the insertion removal aspect, Mm -hmm. particularly the removal, they're very tricky to handle. And so when you've got a squirmy child and you're putting a lens on their eyes, it can be even more difficult. So I do see that it's already, you know, a system that for a child you need to make it as simple as possible. Mm -hmm. And if that means popping on a lens and popping it right off with a plunger, because I mean, in school, we were taught to remove RGP's with our fingers. And oh my god! Like, yes, I, I I exclusively use DMB devices to remove lenses. I will not have kids traumatize their eyelids
1: <laughs> <laughs> and honestly create wrinkles in the long run. Seriously, they're gonna say <laughs> North. Okay, I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> hey,
2: you know, I'm wondering whether all of the the blubber that we see is due to people traumatizing their eyelids with their RGP <laughs> because you, you tend to see that with RGP wearers. And I'm wondering if it has a lot to do with their removal.
1: <laughs> I mean, <probably>. <laughs> I've been curious about that, but I never bring it up to patients because I don't got time for that kind of conversation.
0: <laughs> I, know, I know. That's another can of worms. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes, it is.
0: What is the youngest age that you've started myopia management and the oldest age that mm. you've started myopia management? Youngest,
2: I want to say four. He's a
0: sweet little boy. He was a minus two myope at
2: age four. We got him in orthokeratology lenses and atropine combination therapy. And the oldest, actually, she is 15. She had jumped a whole diopter in the previous year. And I didn't want to just cater it to her having a growth spurt. So we're like, all right, let's do this. Oh, wow. Um, good. Yeah. So that's youngest and oldest ages. My highest myope is actually a five-year-old girl. We have her in a soft multifocal and atropine combination therapy. And I'm sure, and I question whether there's some sort of connective tissue dysfunction going on there too, just because being five and almost a minus nine is kind of crazy.
1: Wow. Yeah. Do you encourage kids to go outside and spend time outside? I've started doing that for parents and myopes actually.
2: Yeah. Oh, I've been doing that since the beginning. For pre-myo, there was that study published that said, hey, 11 hours of outdoor play really helped reduce conversion to myopia. But I think more recent work has shown that as much as you can maximize outdoor time in chunks, is going to be helpful in the long run. I still have that email to send to Dr. Liu at Berkeley because I'm going (laughs) to get some literature from her. I can't tell you how important the literature has been to me.
1: (laughs) You said 11
2: hours? 11 hours a week. Oh, Mm -hmm. a week. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 11 hours of outdoor time a week, minimum. Is there new papers? Because
0: it sounds like you're reading the most, the big papers that we kind of reviewed maybe in our part one of our podcast. Sure. You mentioned that you were emailing Dr. Liu about more papers. I'm like, what are we missing? (laughs) Yeah. When I get those papers, I'll definitely let you know. Yes.
2: There's a a lot more exciting and more recent research that is on a much smaller scale. I think Mm -hmm. that's not on everybody's radar quite yet because- it's a lot of animal models and not mm-hmm. human studies. So I'll keep you updated.
1: She's like Sounds the good. literature queen. Let me tell you. <laughs> when we were at the Cooper vision residency summit, she was just like spitting out all these doctors' names and all these articles and things that they've written. I'm just like, Oh God, I'm so behind. <laughs> I just, wanted, I just want to say to everyone right now, um, Dr. Maria Lu at Berkeley
2: is my absolute, she's like the myopia goddess. And then Dr. <laughs> Mark Bullimore is the king of myopia in my eyes. Like as, <laughs> if you haven't, you need to read all of Mark Bullimore's papers,
0: full stop. <laughs> He's the one that came out with the whole one die after reduction means this much percent of reduct- reduced risk for all these other, you know, all the pa- pathologies and things like that. And it's yeah. so true. Those two names are just
1: Every die after matters. Every die after matters. (laughs) She was totally fangirling him.
2: It was. I got a great photo. I I got a great photo with him and I will (gasps) say that. I don't even remember getting this photo.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She blacked out. (laughs) She was so excited about it. I was so excited. Well, I think the beauty of the myopia management, I guess, gurus is that they're all super approachable I've been in a talk where, you know, I was listening to Dr. Bullimore and I'm just like, he's just so down to earth. Like <laughs> he, is. he is. He totally and Doctor Lou too. Doctor Lou as well. And I'm just like, oh, just go to these talks and I'm just like, it just makes sense. <laughs> Can I just listen to you all day, every day? (laughs) All day, every day. And then also I got to give a
2: shout out to Kate Gifford. She is my myopia and binocular vision queen. I love myopiaprofile.com. It makes it super easy for people to get into it too. Look at some research. They have publications on the website. It's completely free to use, which is wonderful. Brian Holden Vision Institute is another wonderful resource as well. So just Mm -hmm. plug in all these wonderful people.
0: How many tabs do you have open when you have a <laughs> consultation visit and you're like, these are all my resources. What are the tabs? <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: This is going to be the very interesting part. I actually don't have anything on a screen open. Really? Everything- <laughs> yes! It's all
1: in her brain, girl.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Everything I'm communicating to patients and parents is just verbal. And then I have like my little eye model that I'm showing just to demonstrate axial elongation and that's uh-huh. it. Amazing. (laughs) So I don't actually have any visuals. I could probably benefit from them, but I don't use any.
0: You mentioned these resources, and I am aware of like the Brien Holden Institute's their myopia progression calculator and things like that. And I know we were going to share a few resources on our website about you know how to implement it or you can utilize as a practitioner, and that was one of them. But I think for me, I I usually have the axial length chart, and I guess in your case, where <laughs> you don't measure it, you won't have it up. But <laughs> I'll have that pulled up because I I like using that to explain to parents. I'm like this is kind of where the percentile where your kid like is that right now. And this is what we're looking at. And this is, you know, their risks of progressing. And this is why we care about it. So, but yeah, I think keeping it simple is also really helpful. But I always wonder in these consultation visits, I'm like, how much are these parents absorbing? Cause I can be very informative.
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh,
2: my God. oh no. And then I make a point to mention that too. Actually, I do acknowledge, like I just threw out a lot of information at you. Take my business card. I'm happy to answer any questions. They usually come up with a couple after and they email me which has worked okay in residency. I don't know how well that's going to work out in real practice. Mm. Ah,
0: you keep that stuff to yourself. <laughs>
2: yes,
1: that's it. Nope.
2: Nope. I'm not answering any emails to patients.
1: <laughs> After this, we're cutting um, it off.
2: <laughs> yes. Um, but then like our myopia agreement, we have that during our consultation. So they have everything right in front of them, mm-hmm. the cost of the program, acknowledging that they're responsible for this much, signing off, initialing, dating it, and everything so that if they're agreeing to it, then we can just go ahead and get started right away. And we let them take the paperwork home too to read over it as well if they're wanting additional time.
0: Does your agreement include areas for the kid to sign? Because I used to be in a practice where the kid had to sign the consent forms of how they're going to take care of the lenses. And Mm. it was just getting them involved in the process of committing. It made them more compliant. (laughs) Like, Is that something that your practice does?
2: That's actually a really good point. We don't actually involve the child in that aspect. I involve them in the entire conversation by saying, you're the one who's going to be wearing these lenses. Like what questions can I answer about these? And they ask, oh, do they hurt? Do they blah, 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 blah. And that's Mm -hmm. when that part of the fitting actually starts. It's like, it's not going to hurt you. It's going to be more uncomfortable for that first week or two, but you'll get used to it very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so they're usually on board, especially if they're tiny, tiny kids, and they're not wanting to wear glasses. They get excited about that aspect of things too. That's
1: mm-hmm. a great point. Having them committed as well, and seeing how you know, yeah. everyone is here for you, both the doctor and the parents. I mean, all of this is just for you. So we need you to be kind of committed too. Although, <laughs> yeah, you know, they're young, and, and but yeah. still. And,
2: Exactly. And that's the reason why we do have the consultation aspect of it. And we charge for that consultation because parents have to be on board with it, but the child has to be on board. And then you dedicate your time during an exam slot to talk about this and get everybody on board. So it's, it's worth everyone's time to do that. Absolutely for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. It sounds like you guys do a global fee. So is it mm-hmm. transferred over? Like, do you have patients that end up deciding they're like, Oh, actually that was a little bit more expensive, even though like, yeah. we were willing to pay for the consultation, like right. how many more touch points do you have for some of these parents who end up deciding that they're like, maybe we'll hold back. Right. So commit. we'll,
2: we'll waive the cost of the consultation if they're deciding to proceed with the program at any point, like if it was not the same day, if it was maybe a week later, two weeks later, and if they just decide not to proceed at all, well, We didn't waste our time and we collected a fee for that. But yes, it's a global fee that we're collecting and we include the cost of the consultation if they proceed.
0: Gotcha. For Mm -hmm. orthokeratology, do you also include like backup? Like how often are you replacing the lenses for these patients?
2: We are educating patients and parents that we want the lenses replaced annually and they have an Mm -hmm. option to purchase a lens warranty if a lens breaks the way that do it at our clinic is it's going to be several hundred dollars to replace a pair. But mm-hmm. if you get the warranty for this price, if a lens breaks at any point during the year, whether it's right lens or left lens or two right lenses or two left lenses, you get up to two lenses replaced with a warranty. And as first time wearers, they completely understand and they usually go
1: for the warranty. Mm-hmm. So smart. I cracked my <laughs> ortho lens. Y'all know that I've, I've told Priscilla this on one of the, one of the other episodes. I've cracked my OrthoK lens before I've lost the other one down the drain. After that second incident, I stopped. Cause I was like, this is too embarrassing at this point. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't request to order another one. I was away on externships at that time, <laughs> <laughs> but I loved ortho I really liked being able to wake up and be able to see clearly. So I, if I could, I think that would be the treatment option that I would really go with. It's just very convenient especially, well, combined with atropine, I guess, I don't know, Do for your kids who you prescribe atropine for, I think mm-hmm. I read somewhere you can always, if you're not doing a contact lens along with it, you can always do like a progressive with transitions to kind of help mitigate the complications, like, you know, the wide pupil with glare and photophobia and brightness mm-hmm. issues. And then obviously not being able to see well up close, having a progressive and having transitions in that would help with those. Have you done any of that? Um, for those who are strictly on
2: atropine, mm-hmm. no, I haven't. But having a transition lens is actually a fantastic idea. Also incorporating some amount of prism is helpful. I've seen mm. good work done with Kate Gifford on mm-hmm. prismatic lenses instead of progressives or not in place of them, but maybe considering prism instead of a progressive. Okay, But I do like the idea of the transition for sure. I just encourage patients and parents to wear sunglasses outside because I think most of my kiddos are on combination therapy and not just strictly
1: atropine. Gotcha. My mm-hmm. prism, what kind of prism and how much generally?
2: Uh, hard to say base out, but I want to say no more than maybe
0: two to four per eye. Oh. Yeah. I see. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Is that to help also, with like accommodative virgins that may be knocked out with the atropine? Is that the thought process?
2: You know, I wish I could reference, I will find those papers and I'll let you know exactly why that is. I don't want to just mm-hmm. speak out of nothing, but there was a lot of work done. I actually got to review a paper for something that Kate Gifford had written as a publication as part of the whole GPLI. Mm-hmm. Type of thing, Shawan will know, and so I got a lot of exposure then. So all your children with ESO posture are actually fantastic candidates for orthokeratology. It actually does help uh, normalize their alignment a little bit. So pearl there, <laughs>
0: interesting. She just casually dropped that pearl. She's like, yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> See, those little pearls are the things you don't really hear about. Even when we go to CE courses about maybe myopia control, little things like that aren't really mentioned.
2: And I wonder why. I don't know why that is. But, I mean, if
0: you're trying to teach somebody something, you sh- I feel like those little things matter, right? So. Well, I think my biggest thing when I go to these conferences is I feel like they're catered towards practitioners who literally haven't done it at all. So it's like either mm-hmm. super basic or it's like the case studies of a complicated fit that may or may not go into like a lot of detail, but then it's like, okay, well, it doesn't resonate. Yeah. If I'm kind of in the middle, mm-hmm. like, what do I do? And so you just kind of end up going to more, just being like, oh, maybe I'll absorb just a pearl or maybe absorb something that the, the speaker is speaking, even if the material isn't entirely new to me.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Hmm. I guess mm-hmm. this would be the content that they would provide at the Vision by Design <laughs> conference, the one that's just yes. purely orthokeratology, which I've never been to. Oh, yeah. But The one are. that was
2: canceled this year, sadly. But they're actually
0: rolling out online classes, I think, content starting in June, I believe, for a few hundred dollars. And I was like, I am definitely going to pay for that and <laughs> have that on demand.
1: <laughs> oh, interesting. Very okay.
0: cool. Have you utilized any executive line bifocals in your myopia management program? I have not. Okay.
2: Yeah. Um, I don't think that there's good enough data on the bifocals and my practice is very data driven. The Mm -hmm. DIMS is so wonderful. I actually did have a patient who came in for a consultation and proceeded with our program, but she was fit with DIMS in Hong Kong. So we don't have DIMS Mm -hmm. here yet, but did she have progression? And that's why she she was in a chair or? Well, her mom wanted to find a provider here because they Um, had moved from there to the Seattle area. So they were looking for a provider to take over her myopia care. And so I actually fit her into an orthokeratology lens. And so she's no longer wearing her DIMS lenses and (laughs) continues her atropine. So yeah, DIMS I think is a great, these defocused lenses are a great idea. I think Mm -hmm. I need to see enough data on it. I don't know that I've seen a lot. I've just seen that the idea of them exists. So yeah. I would be the
1: wrong person to ask about that. It looks like it's gonna be coming up soon though. So that's very yeah. exciting. It
2: was approved in Canada. So it's yep. only a matter of time before we get it out here. The problem with spectacle lenses also, and this is going into optics a little bit, is that you have that 12, 13, 14 millimeter space from the cornea to the lens. And it's like, whatever refractive benefit you are getting from a defocused lens is almost getting lost or scattered before you even mm. hit the cornea. I feel like. So for me, I think the issue is, is how well are the optics working in a spectacle lens versus on a contact lens on the surface of your eyes?
1: That'd be a great research project. I know. To so all the incoming done. residents <laughs> in the future, though. We
0: None of us. We do this a lot on our podcast.
1: <laughs> we
0: <laughs> always <future> prov- students.
1: <laughs> We always have these great idea, like research topics, study topics. And we're like, well, to all you incoming residents... <laughs>
0: <laughs> get <Really>? on it
2: or <laughs> all of you new grads or you know optometrists listening to this
1: maybe you could do like an investigator initiated study <laughs> there you I go but I mean it would be nice if our names could be on the poster or paper just for suggesting the idea so <laughs> 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 uh, but really though that'd be a really good one the dim yeah. versus like a soft multifocal lens in the future
0: you know I'm uh, sure they're already doing it <laughs> Oh yeah.
2: If they aren't, then I'm going to go email Dr. Spores because he was my optics guy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's exciting. We have a lot of exciting things coming our way. And I I feel like, you know, scleral lenses are very popular right now, but myopia control is kind of getting up there and it's becoming a hot topic. So
2: I was just talking about that with my attending the other day. I feel like they've been ahead of the curve for a long time, being such a strong myopia clinic. Even when we were students, and that wasn't so long ago, Siobhan, we Mm -hmm. literally graduated last year, and our exposure to myopia was so minimal, and just, Mm -hmm. I feel like in the last two years, it has exploded so much onto the scene, so the amount of exposure people are getting from even a very early start is a lot higher than we even got just a few years ago, which is pretty Mm -hmm. cool.
0: Well, I think that's why I already feel old. (laughs) 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 I've been out like a year after my residency, and there's already so much out there, and that's one of the things with doctors is just we got, we got to constantly keep up with the research and what's coming out because yeah. the school can only fit so much information in your education. And then it's exactly. on you to kind of go out and apply the concepts that you've learned to learn yeah. and incorporate <laughs> the new stuff.
1: Definitely. And that's
0: what the CE's for.
1: <laughs> yeah. I have one last question before we let you go. I just thought about this right now, but for patients who have degenerative myopia, do you feel like it's worth putting them into myopia control? I mean, if you do more than likely, it'd be combination therapy, of course, but have you Mm -hmm. come into contact with any degenerative myopes that you've started myopia control treatment for?
2: Now, I guess I also, my question back to you is, are you looking at a specific age? Are they adult uh, degenerative myopes or are they children that you've decided, okay, we're diagnosing you with degenerative myopia?
1: The ones that I've seen have been early teens, mid-teens, Mm-hmm. And it's crossed my mind where, you know, is it really worth putting them into myopia management? But mm-hmm. it's, it's not something that I've really dived into, but I wondered yeah. if you had.
2: I haven't come across that either. All of my degenerative myopes are, they're adults minus 19, minus 22, mm-hmm. who are mm. in specialty contact lenses just to be functional. But that's a really good question because because all of their Progression is purely axial. Their scleral walls are so thin that they just Mm -hmm. continue to grow and the axial elongation is just out of control. And Mm -hmm. I wonder if any type of defocus, like giving your, you know, your peripheral blur is enough of a signal. Mm -hmm. We still don't know how atropine works. I mean, only 10% of any pharmaceutical agent penetrates into the anterior chamber and then a lot of it's lost on its way to the back, to -hmm. the retina. So I don't know, that's a tough question. I haven't had to manage that yet though.
0: That's I have awesome. another patient that I was thinking of now that we were talking about pathology that can also cause myopia progression. And I do have mm-hmm. a patient who has ROP and there is an association with high myopia. And I had a colleague ask me, he's like, oh, would you start myopia control on this patient? Even though there's not a ton of data on it. And I was just like, if it was my kid, I would. So it's like one of those things where it's like, as long as you have informed consent for some of these patients, I told them, I was like, I don't mind trying. As long Mm -hmm. as you want me to be aggressive, we can go there. (laughs) We
1: can, absolutely. It's so hard to really determine how effective myopia management would be for these type of patients, like degenerative myopes and RP patients, because they really have a predisposition for having high myopia. So it just, it's a tough situation, but-
0: Well, the interesting thing with ROP is that the high myopia is more likely to be associated with lenticular changes and not so Mm -hmm. axial length. And so it's one of those things where you could be doing myopia management. And if you don't measure the axial length, you may not know if you're actually doing anything. Right. (laughs)
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Those, Those special cases, 100%, I would agree. You need to have all the data.
1: For sure. Mm. Well, thank you so much for all your time, Jasmine. Is there any question that we can answer? We've asked you a ton. Oh, she
2: actually nothing. has a list. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! no. Um, Just like about time. Well, <laughs> well, at this point, Priscilla's out in practice doing this. Shawan, you're going to be at an institution,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: I guess once you've sort of figured it out, I'd love to hear about how you've implemented myopia management into your practice because. These are all just different modalities and I don't know where I'm going to land yet. So I'll have to see how I adjust and change. I think the beauty of my residency was giving me that exposure to private practice. So I -hmm. do have some exposure to having to set up my own myopia control clinic. So just, I would ask that you guys keep me posted on how things go. I'm very interested in, in
0: hearing about that.
1: I will for sure.
0: Do you want to work in private practice, academia, or like an ophthalmology clinic? Like, is there a specific modality that you are looking at? Yes, um, out there, you know.
2: I know, <laughs>
0: guys. Yes, I am.
2: I'm finishing up residency. I'm in Seattle right now, and I'm looking for a private practice. But I don't mind doing a group OD OMD practice either. So, Jasmine Bungu, that's my name. I am <laughs> West, West Coast. Are you location limited? <laughs> Ah, yes. I'm trying to stay on the West Coast. California girl, but I've been all up and down this Western seaboard.
0: And I guess prior to our talk for this episode, she discussed how much she likes Portland. So (laughs) just throwing that out there. Anyone (laughs) listening?
2: I am looking to be hired.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jasmine, thank you so much for your time and all your tips and tricks and Everything. It was really nice talking to you. You provided so much feedback and everything was very, very useful and helpful.
0: Thanks for thank letting you. us take your break. For sure. Well, thank you for
2: having me on. This is my first podcast as a guest. So. <laughs> we are honored.
1: <laughs> we are. Well, I'll be looking for future CE courses by you that are going to be very useful. <laughs> oh my God.
0: <laughs> She'll be doing joint ones with <laughs> Dr. Bull. It's her
1: dream. That's my dream.
0: That we'll be taking selfies at those.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for everyone for listening. If you guys have any particular questions, you can always submit them to our website. And until next time, then. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Cornea Corner podcast. Visit our website, thecorneacorner.com and our Instagram page at corner. For additional resources including photos of any of the cases that were discussed.